Hello, welcome, welcome to self-improved my mishpocha. That's Yiddish for my family and or friends like family. Enjoy your weekend. It's Friday. We're here. <clears throat> Thank God it's Friday. <clears throat> for all my Yiddin, my Yahudim, Shabbat Shalom. And enjoy tonight. For anyone wondering, by the way, I always say this, but Shabbat, it's just a tradition Jews do where on Friday night till Saturday night, you do not do anything. You don't work. You don't create, meaning you don't create electricity. So you just stop using electrical things. You read. You play board games. Um, you don't even cook. You only you don't make heat. So you only eat foods that are pre-cooked or, or processed or whatever. That is Shabbos. And uh, that's why Fridays are so fun. It's like Thanksgiving every week for Jews. Anyways, enjoy. Take care. We have part Four of Psycho-Cybernetics. What a good book. And I get so deep, folks. Like, really deep. Oh, my God. Be careful with emotional carryover. Reset before entering a new chapter of the day or speaking with a new person. Folks, welcome to part four now of this book summary. This will be it. I guarantee it. Right, we're almost done summarizing Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. What a gem. But honestly, I've heard this before, actually, and I've told clients at work because I'm in the fitness industry. I tell people, listen, change your emotional state before you open the door at home. Because obviously that emotion you carry at work, maybe it's stress. Maybe they're not always positive. You don't want that carrying over at home. Change it. So be very careful with that carryover emotions. Now, we can actually utilize this in a positive way. So if you, in the morning, practice being grateful, really visualize a fantastic moment in your life and you let that carry over into another conversation you have or you let that carry over into work that's a, a, a positive that's beneficial but when you know yourself well you know it's not a good thing stop breathe get out of that state and the easiest way to get out of states is to breathe your breath controls your state by a more vigorous or long exhale we slow down our heart rate and decrease cortisol the stress hormone when we make an inhale vigorous or lengthen the inhale we will increase adrenaline and cortisol making us alert that's a life hack and the breathing alone can help you change states for certain scenarios in life this quote i had to write down it is this reacting without having a plan is a never-ending misery cycle i'll say it again reacting without having a plan is a never-ending misery cycle what does this tell you? It tells me we need to stop, take a second, and think before we speak or act. We don't always have that chance, and that's why subconscious programming comes into play. But when you slow down a situation, you will learn something better and more effective. This is proven, actually. This has been done in studies. Mice that ran through a maze when they were in a high-stress situation. They had been fasted for 36 hours they did not perform all that much better their second time through. Whereas the mice that were fed, they weren't fasted for very long, they were relaxed, did better their second time through because they could think clearly, they were not in a crisis. Hence, reacting without having a plan sucks, but let's say you have to because it's life-threatening. Let's hope you practiced when there wasn't crisis how to react. So you knew how to react when there was crisis. Simple. There's an old saying, I think, and it's 
when something happens, give it 24 hours, but don't wait longer than 48 hours to dis- do to address it. I'll say that again. Give something 24 hours, but don't wait 48 hours. When you hear actor, you think of a movie, but think about literally someone that acts or makes acts. That that sounds weird to say slowly, but to act upon something. You are an actor if you act upon things. So, Maltz says, reacting with a plan, it makes you an actor. A goal-striving being first must act. We set our own goals. We determine our own course. And, you know, within the context of a whole goal-striving structure, we respond and react appropriately. Now, that is in a manner that will further our progress and serve our own ends, right? Now, if that sounded like gibberish, what this means is when you set a goal and you're going towards it, you're going to react to things that are popping up that you didn't expect, but you will act appropriately. And the way you act when one of those blockades come in will hopefully actually help you. (laughs) Hopefully you don't act in a way that doesn't help you, right? When you have a plan, you know how to respond to that blockade. So that's why he says... Like reacting with a plan makes us actors. Like we then start acting upon previous programs that we've put in our brain. Uh, I don't know. This, it, it's kind of simple. So now picture a blockade pops up. And let's say responding doesn't actually take us any further towards our goal or serves our ends. There's no need to respond at all to that blockade. If a response gets us off course, there's, then no response is the appropriate response. It's like when people say that making no choice is still making a choice. Keep in mind, folks, like you don't have to act upon every blockade. Because acting itself, like he says, a response could take you away from your goals. So by not acting upon things, that is yet you acting... It's, it sounds like a trippy inception concept, but and I'll try to say this without confusing you. To not act would be acting towards your goals. To, to taking on an act that would get you closer to your goal. Isn't that trippy? And I've heard fitness influencers say, quitting's okay. It is okay to quit if it means you're propelling yourself forwards, okay? There's a stigma to quitting. And that's what it reminds me of when I say that by not responding, you're still responding, and that's a good thing. Now, I'm going to go back for my own self, and you're going to need to hear me think out loud here and read that, because I really love this. Like, I need to remember this, that we are going to react to blockades, obstacles, and we'll react appropriately if we have to, to get us towards our goals. But let's say by reacting to that, it's just slowing us down, like it's not actually in the way. God, that's empowering. Then we don't need to. We can just forget about it. It's actually, let's go all the way back to me talking about the targets. It's the same thing. Why worry about how you missed when you don't miss anymore? Now focus on the bullseye, how you hit that bullseye when you did. We don't have to remember how we messed up if we're now succeeding. Sometimes these obstacles come up just to try and remind us how we messed up. And it's like, there's no point in remembering that. Watch out for the mental pictures that create worry and assumption or are based on worry and dis- or an assumption that's the crazy thing react to what's literally in front of you and you will decrease your stress and i'm not going to use the word be present i hate i hate that buzzword so much um but isn't this crazy going back a second like 
literally some of our imaginations are based on assumption and worry. They're not real. <laughs> They're not real, but our brain thinks they are. And that's when things start changing for the negative, actually. Whereas then when we shift our focus, we, we shine the light back on what is happening at the moment. Our brain then knows or not knows our brain sees that as reality, just like it saw our imagination as reality. And your brain adapts to what you've shifted the focus to. Think of it like our ego, our brain, it's like a spotlight. We can move this spotlight ourselves if we have that super ego that's aware. And there's so much in the shadow that we aren't expressing. And some of it can stay there. And we can shift this spotlight in and out. We can decide what we want the spotlight to be shined on. And that's what our physiological state's going to react to. Does that make sense? Our physiological state, our heart rate, our hormones are going to react to what we shine our spotlight on. So be very careful what you're shining lights on, people. Now, I personally like to dive into my psyche. So sometimes I like to shine a light on things. If someone once told me, Zev, you'll never literally said you'll never be able to have a successful business if you keep doing what you're doing and that shined a light on my insecurity of being a good businessman i didn't even know that was an insecurity that was in the shadow i didn't see it until i shined my spotlight there and then my physiological state started to change for the worse and i had to shine my light back on things that helped me positive mental images that were in the shadow that i had to shine the light on there you go Folks, we overestimate pain and discomfort. And we also overestimate hedonism, pleasure. This is one of the top things Lori Santos talks about at Yale in the Science of Wellbeing, saying that we are horrible at predicting stuff as, humans, as human beings. We always think things will be worse than they are, and we think they'll be better than they are. And that is why she talks about mindfulness, being grateful for the moment. Things are never as bad or as good as we think they will be, folks. Never forget this. And I'll tell you why this will change your life. There was a study done. They zapped people. They, they told people they were going to zap them. Or no, I don't know if they did. The, the first group got zapped without knowing it. And when they did a survey, said it wasn't that bad. So another person, they said, you have 10 seconds to prepare for your zap. The person in the survey said it felt a little worse than the first person, even though it was the same zap. And then the third person had two minutes. And they obviously in the survey said that the zap was way more painful. When I say person, I mean a group of people. This study had lots of people in there. And so what does this tell you? That we are in our heads. We are creating fallacies. We're creating beliefs that things are going to hurt more than they do. And it's no different than um, a vacation, the house, the car, the TV, the, the cake the food you know what i mean we're, we think those will be so great and then when it happens it's not and if something just happens randomly we're a little more humbled by it than if we had hyped it up for months you know what i mean and then so it's actually the opposite you see how people hype up the pain and it's worse people hype up the vacation and it's also worse it's not as good as you thought I find that really interesting and so what it tells you is you can drop everything regarding seeking more, if that makes sense. Like you don't need to strive for more anymore. And then you can go and backtrack and say, okay, 
I shouldn't be worrying or, I guess, overestimating shit that's coming because if I'm in the moment, it won't hurt as bad, right? Like, that's a coping mechanism. Stay in the moment and your pains won't hurt as bad. And sadly, life is full of pain, but that's the way it is. Yin-yang theory, we need it to feel happy and that's the way it is. And since you understand that you need the pain to feel good, that actually then makes the pain a good thing. And so now everything's good. <laughs> and, yeah. Maxwell Maltz believes you cannot perform acts of anger or rage when you are relaxed. So think about this. Sorry, I just got schmoozing with a ton of clients that just walked in. Uh, not mine, but others. And so, where was I? You cannot perform acts of anger or rage when you're relaxed, okay? This is really, it seems so common sense, but there has to be tension in your body to lash out, okay? And you might say, like, oh, Zev, what if I'm super relaxed and then I lash out? No, no. Technically speaking, you have to be tense the moment you lash out. You could be super zen and relaxed right up until you lose that. But technically speaking, if you are relaxed, you will not lash out. So breathe, take 10 breaths, and you won't lash out. Now, this is super random, but I saw someone, another strategy. Now, this is an extremely anecdotal strategy, but they said if you get into an awkward position, literally change your position, your posture, you won't want to argue as much. So this person, have you ever seen in yoga, um, happy baby? They literally got into happy baby when they were arguing and it, they, they couldn't help but kind of laugh and it just ruined the seriousness of the argument. And I don't know, this is what I'm talking about, changing your state and breathing is a way to change your state. The whole gang, say something, say something to the mishpoche. Hi guys. <laughs> there we go. Scott just dipped in a hurry. Oh my gosh. And then Benny, I'm going to give you guys the narration. Benny just did some quick happy feet. That was the, um, the Irish dance came out in the Irishman. Oh, <laughs> man, look at him. <laughs> Is that racist? Is that... So Maxwell Maltz, he talks about pressure in sports causing choking, but also clutchness. Now, I never thought about it like this, but toss someone that can't swim into water. And heck, they might find a method to not die. But if you ask them to swing along, swim a long distance, they're incapable of learning an efficient stroke, and then they might die. And you can apply this directly to your life. Remember that mouse study I told you, okay, about them being in crisis versus the ones that weren't? So Dr. Edward Tolman, he coined a term, latent learning, and... He talks about our brain makes these general maps when we aren't under crisis. And that general nature allows us to actually optimize our cognition. Whereas someone who's in crisis, they have this narrow map and they can't think outside the box. So like that swimmer, right? You, you are in essence hurting yourself even though you're just trying to survive. Athletes benefit almost the greatest from this. Instead of only dealing with the breakaway when it is in the final minutes, it's best to, when there's no pressure at all, go on breakaways and ingrain that into the subconscious. You will, when you get into a crisis situation where you need to make that play, it sounds, you're going to say, no, that does, it's not true, but you, you will actually make the play way more effectively. So now, if you're listening you're not an athlete who's going to be on a breakaway, you can do the same thing for social settings. Performers, salespeople, speakers, they benefit greatly from this as well. This is interesting. I didn't know this. Crisis, it comes from a Greek word, point of decision. So a crisis, it's a fork in the road. One fork holds a promise of better conditions. The other fork, worse conditions. 
And that is when people are in a crisis, when they have to think it's going to either go well or not. Think about any crisis ever. That is what it comes down to. It's a fork in the road. And get ready for the schmaltz. This is going to be extremely cliche. And you already know the answer to this. If you're worrying about that, don't. You go the stoic route. You work on what you can control. It's that simple. And what can you control? Practicing in a controlled environment so that when you're in a crisis, you're going to crush it. That's what you can control. This is refreshing. So Maltz said, instead of looking at the id, the ego, and the superego for answers, that we can actually just look at neuroscience. And I am guilty of this. I love using buzzwords. But he says, like, those are simply just titles. They're buzzwords. Our engrams, a term I've never heard before. This is pretty much how the sequencing of our neurons happens. That when we say, oh, my ego did this, or, or my, the id made me reach for that cup without thinking about others. Really, he's saying that is just our sequencing in our head that has been programmed that way. Like, somewhere along the lines, we were taught to do that. And we didn't think twice about it. And that is just simply the binary code of neurons firing and not firing. And he says that is what it is. You don't have to romanticize it and make it all these uh, psychology terms. That is simply what is happening, folks. But remember, I tell you this all the time. I believe you can simply change your programming by looking at the information you take in. Because that is the catalyst. Um, also, if you don't want to look at the info you're taking in, just look at the outcomes. The outcomes will tell you the info you take in through that ripple effect from, if you go way back, you'll see when I talked about Dr. Helmstetter's what to say when you talk to yourself, he, he lays it down and I won't go over it now, but just look at your outcomes or look at your info and it will tell you what your subconscious programming looks like. There's a huge ripple effect after that. He also tells you that it's your responsibility, it's responsibility, sorry, I can't talk to change that pathway. So reading this, well, I'm reading it, but for you listening to this, this is the catalyst potentially, right? He calls it taking off the old record and putting on a new, a new one, then memorizing it. So this analogy goes way deeper than one would think because you have a room of vinyls to choose from. Now, nature versus nurture. Our environment is what gives us a preset of choice. So some people are born with a couple vinyls to pick from, and that's all they know. Some people have a plethora of albums that they can put on that record and memorize. Now, again, you have to take the action. I and I hate using that term, so, so pardon me, but like you have to physically put on a new album and, and change yourself. Like That's why he says it's your responsibility to change your neural pathways. And, and, but think about your environment. Are you blind to what's out there because of the people you surround yourself with or where you were born? And and keep in mind, like, have you memorized a really crappy vinyl? Like, you, is your self-talk really shitty? Replace it. Put on a new one. And But first off, check. Do you have a very healthy album to play that you can memorize? That's the real question. Scour the walls for it. Here's a fun fact. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. No, I was just trying to think before I spoke here like I usually do. no it was just coincidence that sorry folks Scott came in and I just I stopped talking some always oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my god if you guys saw what he is doing right now I'm not even gonna repeat it I'm not even going to I oh my god I I can't fathom this stop don't hold the door frame stop holding the door frame 
Holy shit. Anyway, I was going to say my breath is just taken away when he comes in the room. And it is. It Like, I don't know how to articulate what I just witnessed. And now, now he just, oh my god, he pretended. I'm not going to tell you what he pretended to do. Here's a fun stat, folks. Wealthier people live longer on average. More schooling typically helps you live longer on average. What's funny is that usually people with a lot of schooling equates to more salary and wealth. But what does this also say? Those in poverty live less. So what are we seeing? Are we potentially seeing this gap in class throughout our, our generation? Maybe we'll be dead. Maybe it's the next two generations that will see it. I don't know. But that's sketchy to me that the wealthier are living longer, the more poverty-ridden are living less. It's almost like natural selection, to be honest. It's like we're heading down to the Middle Ages again. Maxwell Maltz believes we can age faster if we don't have control of our emotional stress, right? Our, our adrenals can't tell between physical and emotional stress. It's no different than cortisol. Doesn't know the difference between your parents yelling at you, a teacher yelling at you, or the gym. <laughs> like, you're, like, your hormones just know stress. That's it. They don't know the context. Just like your adrenals know stress. They don't know the context. What up, Benny? How's life? Life is great. Baruch Hashem. Let's go. So, folks, this is the thing. Adrenal fatigue, it can cause you to age quicker. So get in control of your emotional stress and you won't age as quickly. And if you're wondering, like, there's something called chronological age and biological age. So chronological means if you've spent 20 years on Earth, you're 20 years old. Biological age is how, did, how much has your telomeres deteriorated because the telomere which is the end of the dna strand when it's done it's done your cells die you die <laughs> and that dictates and you can measure this okay you can do this i don't know how much it costs and you can see how dwindled away your telomere length is that will dictate your biological age and they kind of project this based on the percent that's disappeared and some people are way older biologically than they are chronologically and vice versa so fun fact do not stress the adrenals with not being able to handle emotional stress. Physical stress is one thing, and that's kind of easy to dictate, but emotional stress, a lot of us are fragile, we have no control over that, we are defenseless. And go back, as I was talking earlier about how to have the defense for that. This is really cool, I thought of a physiotherapy setting, but you could apply this metaphor to anything. Maxwell Maltz, he believes attitude affects recovery. Of course it must, but he says, those who are motivated and excited to get back, they typically get back quicker. That, I couldn't agree more. He discusses as well about staying youthful, okay? So don't identify with being old. With the way medicine is going, like, we might see 70 as middle-aged in 100 years from now, whereas right now, that's old age. So do not start identifying with age. Like, it could change our definition of what's old and young and this and that. You know, plus, let's just talk about energy. If someone, he says, give me a 30-year-old and let me strip away their activity, the way they think, make them sit in a rocking chair, take away their job, their cognitive stimulation, and he could make that 30-year-old in 10 years an old man with pain and kvetching, which is Yiddish for complaining. And I couldn't agree more. Like, honestly, use it or lose it. I, I have some clients who are in their 40s and, and they are so youthful because they still joke around, they still move around. They act like kids and that's so important. There was a study done way back, that, I don't know how they conducted this, this sounds so expensive. They put old people in a scenario like they were kids again, the same down to the pen on the table was from the 50s. And these people didn't age as quickly 
I don't know how they did this, and, and I, I have to fact check this, but go do it yourself as well. Look at this study. It was really interesting. So I'm just saying, it's up in the dome. It's all in your head. Have you heard of the term ageism? Some people start identifying with certain things because of the number of years they've been on Earth. And it's like, we, there's no need to start identifying differently just because you've been on Earth X amount of years. Like, what was different between yesterday and today? If, if your birthday was today, like, nothing has changed. It, it's this perception, this construction we've uh, made. Psycho-Cybernetics, the book, it talks about a couple studies that show learning is as strong at 70 years old as when you're 17. Now, keep in mind, maybe because 17, you're still, your brain's still developing, and 70, it's starting to go, so maybe that's why they're the same. But he does say 35 can be the sweet spot, I think for many said, um, where you hit this like peak cognition, potentially. And then the number changes. Like I've heard many things from many people, but let's just say people like, he says old dogs can learn new tricks when it comes to human beings. And like, again, don't discount yourself just because you're old. The amount of middle-aged people, not even old folks, they're in their 40s or 50s and they start just automatically going, I don't know the phones. Like, talk about limiting yourself. I don't know coding, but you bet I'm going to learn when it gets prevalent. Um, anyways, it, food for thought. Get this, even scientists believe in God. And this is because when you strip it back, even a cut finger far enough, Scientists can't explain why anymore. Like, you can keep asking why forever, but you get to a point you cannot explain why. Um, and I just thought that was interesting. Like, you think people that know so much, they, there comes a point where they still can't explain anything. And that's why there are God believers in the scientific field. There's a quote I'll read from the book here. Whatever definition of happiness may be, you will experience happiness only as you experience more life. I really like this because it tells you, like... They go hand in hand. Like, you need to experience life in order to seek that. Um, never forget how elusive happiness can be, though. Like, like I say, it's not a constant state, right? Yin yang. But just you have to experience life, and that was refreshing to hear. It's like it can't just magically pop up per se. It does take some inertia. So Tiff just walked in. She didn't want to speak on this podcast. She's very shy, but I'll do it for her. She was talking about general anesthesia that she says we don't know why it makes us fall asleep. We just know it works. So that's why we use it, which is kind of scary. Scotty, what are you doing? What are you? I see your hands. Oh, this guy. This guy's guy doing stuff to poor Ben out there. Folks, listen carefully. In order to give... We have to project our past. So accept things so we can give. I'll say it again. Accept so you can give. For example, accept love so that you can give love. Accept a compliment so you can project compliments on others. Accept a drink so you can comfortably give someone a drink. Now I want to dive deeper into that last one. Let's say you've taught yourself that that it, it's bad to spend money on a drink or like, you know, let's just use that example. It's going to be hard to accept a drink from somebody because you believe they're too expensive and you don't want to buy one. But when you, when you start accepting and you say it's fine, like the, and you truly are grateful that they gave you a drink that's expensive, that will help you give someone an expensive drink. That is what I call projection. You're now projecting your past onto someone else. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that mind-blowing? So you have to accept to give. That's the circle of life, the cycle of life, whatever you, whatever you want to say. 
fuck, that is so, I love this. I'm having a, an epiphany as we speak, folks. Like, it is so true. And fill in the blank. Accept blank so you can give blank. Like, it works for everything. Think about how much we've been taught. Like, what's something you l- don't like spending money on? Or what's something you don't like to do? It, when you learn to accept that lovingly from someone else, you will give it to someone else and keep spreading that. But not everyone knows what we're talking about. This is the sad thing. This is why it can be getting aware. Like this to me is I'm seeking awareness right now. And to seek awareness is riding the line of solitude. You start to feel quite lonely because sadly not everyone knows this. So sadly you're going to try to give someone a drink or a compliment. And sadly they're not going to accept it because they don't know what we're talking about. They've never comprehended this. They're stuck in their fears and insecurities. They're not even aware of them. The shadow, I've told you about the shadow. Unless something is expressed in the shadow, you will never express it. Like it's stuck there, you can't see it. It's a blind spot. And some people have these blind spots so they'll never accept a compliment. And that just is sad to me. And that's why I'm telling you to start accepting, okay? And if you ever find yourself not accepting something someone has given you, I think it's time to look inward, okay? You got to reflect. Why don't, or why aren't you comfortable accepting that? Anyways, we're moving on to the conclusion. It's called the afterword. I don't know why you phrased it that way, but it's kind of like the epilogue. So it's like the end of the book. He talks about taking daily baths in in all of this self-help. And this reminds me of the G.I. Joe fallacy that learning is half the battle. You have to apply what you learn. You know, there are things we hear that we already know, but they're not on the forefront of our consciousness. So I think it's really important to reread and rewatch beneficial content. So if there are things you need to rewatch and reread, this is your cue to do it. This is your, I'm planting the seed. Go do it, okay? Because there's nothing wrong with relearning stuff so that it is ingrained, especially if it's a principle, a moral, or a value of yours. So I'm going to quickly explain a story for you because the points I was going to tell you, they wouldn't make any sense unless you know the context. Maxwell Maltz talks about a wrestler. Okay. This guy got in a bar fight, got smashed by a pitcher of beer. And it almost killed him actually because it cut him so bad and so deep in his face he almost died. And he was knocked out, went to the hospital, needed surgery, this and that. And that's just me giving you a 10-second story. So let's dive into the, the moral. He says that by befriending traumatic moments, you will heal. Okay, I want you, I'm going to say that again. Befriending and talking about tragic moments, and tra- oh, sorry, traumatic moments, will heal you. We should not avoid, okay? We will become fragile to these triggers if we avoid these triggers. Like I said earlier about fragility, okay? This literally saved my life. I can attest to this personally. Um, you need to confront. Remember that thing earlier? You, like, you confront issues and they are degraded. Uh, so, and I know, like, reflection so painful. I know that. I really do. And like I said earlier, let's go back again. Unless... By befriending trauma, it is not taking you closer to your goals. Then don't do it. Like, don't take on that. Don't befriend the trauma then, okay? It's that simple. But, but, I think majority of folks 
they don't realize that their potential is decreasing because of this baggage. You know what I mean? And I think it is important for most people to clear that, to take that baggage off their shoulders so they can move quicker. Uh, that's my personal opinion because anecdotally it's helped me. So I'll say it again, people. Befriend trauma. Befriend pain. And you will heal quicker. It won't, it won't seem like such a big deal when you confront it like that. Okay? And I've actually, I just thought of an analogy here. And so if it's weak, pardon me, but imagine you're scared of mice, okay? And forever, you keep saying, I hope I don't see a mice. If I see one, I'm going to freak out and it's going to ruin me. I really hope I don't see one. And one day a, mi- a mouse flies by and you freak out. It paralyzes you. You are, are unable to do anything else. Things that you want to do, you can't. So let's replace the word mouse with trauma. Let's say you go about life going, oh, I hope I don't confront my trauma. I really hope something doesn't trigger my trauma. Well, one day it will, and you're gonna be fucking paralyzed. You won't be able to do anything. It will stop you from doing what you want, which is a lack of freedom. This strips everything away from us. We identify as free people, so we're scared when we don't have no freedom. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, without going off, please befriend the trauma because it's, it'd be like, and so let's go back to the mice example. If that person had a mouse in a cage at work or at home all the time and they saw it all the time, they're going to see a mouse running across the floor. They're not going to freak out right away. It will remind them of fears, right? But then they'll go, ah, that's an old fear. I'm, I'm good with it now. I've moved on. So I want you to move on. But, but you, by moving on, you don't forget. That's the crazy thing. People say move on and you don't move on by forgetting. That's what's annoying. You move on by befriending, by leaning into something because it's a part of you and you're fucking comfortable with yourself. That's how you move on. This, it gives me goosebumps right now. I haven't even said it. Oh my God, I love this. There's a quote at the end of this story and I told you about the pitcher. You almost killed him with a pitcher of water. And he says, now look at that broken pitcher that he is holding. And by the way, some context, like the guy that was smashed over the face He's sitting there talking to a wrestling coach. He wants to go D1, and he's talking to this coach. And, and this coach had a horrible thing happen to him. His daughter was murdered or something, and, and he's just giving him wisdom. Chokhmah. So he says to the young wrestler, he says, Now look at that broken pitcher that your attacker, assaulter, is holding. So now, remember, this wrestler is visualizing this. He goes, Turn that pitcher into a feather. The feather with ink on it. This feather is writing your ticket through life. How poetic is that, people? Like, it makes me emotional because traumas are tickets to enhance our ability to guide others and manage dilemmas, right? God, every piece of pain and trauma and baggage we got, it has written us a ticket to move through life, guiding others to manage their shit. Like, we're here to serve. When we serve, we feel whole. We feel fulfilled. Isn't that funny? And they talk about that in Live, Live Like a Monk, which is the next summer to come. Traumas are a ticket. And tickets, plural. To help us guide others and manage people's dilemmas, man. Men and women. Sorry, women listen to this. God. Well, and then later on, so they go. So this guy tells, tells uh, the coach, this wrestler, he tells the coach, he goes, Matt... Think about how many... Oh, sorry. The coach is telling the wrestler this. Because the wrestler tells the coach, 
that when he replays this moment over and over and over, because that's what he does. This is what I'm saying. He befriended the trauma. He looked at it from the ceiling, from the floor, from another table, through his own eyes again. Like, he looked at that situation so many times again that it he was desensitized to it. And so the coach says, like, like what's up? And he tells the coach... I am so mad. The reason I'm mad is I wasn't able to fight back. And and when he's saying this, he's sobbing uncontrollably. He says, I can't fight back. I can just picture myself in the ambulance waking up from being knocked out, not being able to fight back because a part of his identity was so much of fighting back. He couldn't. He felt restricted. And that's what hurt him, this lack of control. And, to, and something that simple was traumatizing him forever. And he was so mad because he couldn't fight back. So then this coach says, Matt, think about how many people in this world have been put in a situation where they believed they couldn't fight back. You will show them how they can forgive themselves and the other people that didn't allow them to fight back. And notice, remember way back, I told you that Chinese proverb about in the end, it's nobody's fault. And forgiveness is when you realize that. When you get rid of condemnation, you get rid of, a, of forgiveness. So go back a little bit if you forget what I was talking about with condemnation. When you don't want to punish someone or you do not disapprove anymore because you realize it wasn't even them. It wasn't their fault. They were applying baggage. They were projecting baggage. Then you can forgive. And so to come back to this point, he's saying like, Matt, you will show other people how they can forgive themselves and others. And remember, forgiving yourself is huge. So it's one thing to not want to punish or disapprove someone else. That's forgiving them. But to forgive yourself is to not punish yourself or disapprove of yourself anymore. That's forgiving yourself. And how do you do that? Well, you have to realize you're also just projecting. Like the beliefs you have that you are shitty and that you deserve to be punished, that's a belief that's been programmed by your past information. And when you start to realize that, you forgive yourself because it's not your fault. It's your caregivers and their caregivers and their caregivers. It's nobody's fault. It's stemmed from the universe, which is sounds so – it sounds like I'm high right now. But like honestly though, where does it stem from? It stems from stardust. Like that's what's crazy about this. So it's nobody's fault. Um, and talk about just feeling in the present when you realize that. Like you put your hands up and you stop thinking. <laughs> The last point here, and that was really powerful stuff, but the last point's a little more easy to digest. Maltz actually created his best work and most life-changing work at the age of 61. This book and this whole psycho-cybernetic program, he did it in his 60s. Folks, it's never too late to pop off. Let me tell you that if you forgot. I have an aunt that got into law school at the age of 67. Can you believe that? It is never too late. Ever. Think how many years you have till you're 60 or 67. It's never too late, folks. My goodness. I'll say that forever and ever. That's my mantra. I wish you the best. That's all for this. That is part four. Congrats for getting through part four. Wow, what a good time. This was a book that I'm going to keep reading. And um, let's jump to the outro. Thanks for listening. I really hope you use some of this stuff. Outro time. Thanks for listening. Rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. That is it. I hope you enjoyed. I really enjoyed this book. Next up, live like a monk. Let's do it. Bye. Shabbat shalom. Shalom aleichem. That's Hebrew for peace be with you.